We are on the, the Eighth Commandment today, so we are getting close to the end of this series on the Ten Commandments. Um, and as we look at the Eighth Commandment, we're, of course, looking at uh, how God says in His Word, simply, you shall not steal. There it is. Pretty simple, right? And, and in one sense, as we look at this commandment, we remember we're in the second part of the table of the Ten Commandments, which is uh, teaching us how God wants us to love our neighbors. First part is, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Second part is love your neighbor as yourself. And so as we look at this commandment, we, we might even sort of rephrase it with the question of how does God call us to love our neighbors? Well, it's by not stealing from them. And I think we're all kind of familiar with what that means, right? We don't need a whole lot of explanation as to what stealing is. I mean, if you look at, just look at the movies. I mean, we just, uh, Ocean's 8 just came out in the theaters. I, I don't know if any of you have seen that. I haven't seen it yet. But I love Ocean's 11. Like, there's my confession. I love a movie about theft, okay? I mean, that is such a, a, a clever, um, fantastic movie about how they are so brilliant at, at conning people, right? It's, it's just awesome. And I, I feel really bad just saying that, that I love a movie about breaking the Eighth Commandment, but, but there you go. Um, or maybe, you, maybe you've gone online and read some reports about the dumb criminals, right? There, there's one I, I read about a guy who wanted to rob a convenience store, but he, he didn't want to seem too obvious, right? So, so he applies for a job, at the convenience store, hands in his application to the clerk, and then robs it. Not too smart. Or, or the, the Florida, you guys know Florida man? Florida, Florida man breaks into a restaurant, trips the silent alarm, the security company calls, and he answers the phone. Okay. <laughs> so there's that kind of criminal. We, we know about that. Even, even the Bible is full of Stories of theft, right? I mean, Jacob steals the birthright from Esau. Uh, Achan steals the devoted items and buries them in his tent. There's uh, Zacchaeus, the wee little man. You know him as the guy that was short and climbed the tree to see Jesus, right? But did you know he was a thief? He, in, in the scriptures, it says that Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector in his region. What that meant was that he was in charge of all the other tax collectors who worked for the Roman Empire, collecting taxes from the Israelites, or the Jews, uh, to bring back to Caesar. Well, as chief tax collector, Zacchaeus had the dubious distinction of being able to line his pockets with extra cash that wasn't being collected as a tax, but it was just being collected because the Romans didn't care that people were stealing from the Jews. They just cared that they got their money to give to Caesar. So Zacchaeus was a thief, a dirty thief. And we'll talk more about him later. But the point is, we are very familiar with what this prohibition means. Don't do stuff like that, <laughs> okay? But I don't want to spend a whole lot of time talking about the prohibition of this commandment, even though that's kind of what you see here. I want to focus more on, uh, you know, following Frank's lead from the past couple of weeks, what is the positive that comes out of this commandment? What is God implying by saying, don't steal. What is he implying that we should do instead? Okay? Um, and, I, and I think what, if, if you think about the Hebrew word for don't steal, it means don't carry away. Don't take something from 
your neighbor and carry it away as if it is yours. And so what we find is that what God is saying when he says don't steal is he's implying that it's good and right for us to own property. So God's not a Marxist. Okay, God is saying, I'm, I'm going to give you property for you to own. I want you to own basic necessities. So for, for them back in the day, he wanted them to own a tent. He wanted them to own a millstone so they could grind grain. For us, he wants us to own a house or, or to, to be able to rent an apartment. He wants us to have a mode of transportation, to have clothes, to be able to put food on our tables. He wants us to have those basic necessities, and it's good and right for us to own those things. God affirms in the Eighth Commandment that we can own things because he owns all things. He is the owner of everything we we have. Psalm 50.10 says, God says, I own every beast of the forest. It is mine. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. So for us to read that, we're thinking, okay, well, how does that mean that God owns everything? Well, if you think about what wealth was back in those times, wealth was livestock or land. If you had livestock and land, you were rich. If you had a thousand cows, you were a rich person. If you had one cow, you're a, you a poor person. Um, and then God is also saying, I own every beast in the forest. So not only do I own all of the domesticated animals that you already have, I own the undomesticated animals. I own all the potential wealth in the world. I own all wealth. That's what God is saying. So that's kind of hard to understand, though, for us. I mean, because if you own anything, think about your car. Think about your, if you don't have a car, think about your bike or your phone. Almost everybody has a phone. You bought that, right? Or, or somebody at least gave it to you as a gift. So, so how does God own that? I mean, it almost doesn't even make sense. Well, think about how your car was made. Think about the materials that went into making your vehicle. I, I have a 20-year-old Toyota 4Runner. All right, I'm proud of that. I think it's going to be a classic soon, and I'll get to put one of those classic license plates on it, I think. maybe I don't know. But the, the materials that Toyota needed to make that forerunner existed at the creation of the universe. That's kind of weird to think about, right? I mean, God, I guess, potentially could have just pulled a forerunner out of the ground when, when Adam and Eve were around, right? He could have. Didn't, but he could have. So that's, and, and, and wealth also. Think about your, the money in your wallet, the, the, the money sitting in your, your bank account or your IRA. I mean, that wealth existed at the creation. God is the source, the, the sort of unmoved mover of all the wealth in the world. All of it. He owns everything because creation implies ownership. And so as the owner of all things, here, here's what kind of owner God is. He's not an owner that, that says, I'm going to be stingy with what I own. Because God is the owner of all things, he delights in giving good gifts to his children. That's what we find in James 1.17, which says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or no shadow due to change. He is a giver of good and perfect gifts. So even, even think about the things that you there aren't basic necessities, but the things that you just kind of want to have, like a, a pool or a, 
a golf membership, or I, I was driving down on the way here, and I saw like an Audi, I think it was an A4, one of those really sweet, like Bruce Wayne type cars. If you have one of those, okay, that's, that's a want. That's from God. He delights in giving good and precious gifts to us, okay? Why? Because he is a good father who knows very well how to give good gifts. It's kind of like, uh, I don't know if you've read, um, or it's actually the opposite of this, the series of unfortunate events, or there's a new uh, um, like Netflix series out where Count Olaf is this really cruel count who, who wants to take in these orphans just so he can steal their inheritance, right? And so he gives them nothing but terrible things. Uh, it makes them just slave away and, and cook without, you know, th- enough stuff to make food. And Anyway, that is the exact opposite of what God is. Okay, maybe, maybe we think of God that way sometimes as though he is, he's just kind of, you know, miserly and cruel, but he's, he's a good father who gives good gifts, who loves to see us delight in the things that he gives us and to delight in him, more importantly. So everything that we have is from God, and he gives it through us to means. You know, there's really only three ways to get something, right? You can, you can steal it, which God says, don't do that. Or you can work for it, and, and he positively says, yes, do that. Or you can be given something as a gift. And so the, the two legitimate ways that we can get something, God is saying, that's how I want you to go about getting the things you have, primarily through working hard. So this speaks to the doctrine of vocation, is that God provides work for us, and through our work, he gives us most of what we have. But also, um, through our work, he calls us to be generous, to be able to give to others, to be able to give good gifts, emulating him who is a father who gives good gifts. And so what we see is that the eighth commandment in the positive is a call to be faithful stewards of the gifts that God gives us, both by hard work, both by whatever vocation God has given you, uh, and also by being generous with what God gives us. And we see this in Ephesians 4.28, uh, where Paul says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So Paul, as he's talking to the Christian community at Ephesus, he's talking to the church, um, he, he's saying he wants the thief to change. Yes, he is rebuking him for his thievery, but he's also giving him sort of a rehab plan to get out of his thievery. And he's saying the rehab plan is, is not just to not steal, okay, yes, it's that, but it's also to get an honest job. But here's, here's the, the key. Why? Get an honest job so that you can give to anyone in need. That's, that's the, the key here that I think often we miss because it's totally different. It's a, it's a very different philosophy of work from what we probably have been brought up to believe through the American dream. Okay, you know the American dream. It's basically it says, whatever you do, do it for your own happiness. Do it. Get, get a, a, a good education so you can go to a good college so that you can get a degree, maybe two degrees, so that you can get a high-paying job. Why? So that you can pursue your own pleasure. 
I mean, that's basically what the American dream is. And there's some good things about the American dream, obviously, but it doesn't go far enough. Because the Bible's view of vocation, the Bible's view of of work and education is, is this. Do whatever you have, whatever you do for God as your master. And, and for God as your master, go get a good education. Go to a good college or, or tech school or, or whatever. Um, get a good job. Why? So that you can bless other people. So that you can bless the church. That's a very different view of vocation, of work, than what we are typically raised with. John Piper talks about being conduits of generosity. If, if God has blessed you with, with great wealth, or even modest wealth, um, do you see yourself as a conduit through which God can bless other people? Or do you see yourself as, that wealth's just going to stop with me? How do, you, how do you view the blessings God has given? Now, I wanted to point out an example of this. Um, Patrick, our new youth director who you saw earlier just this week, gave, gave me this, this story about a guy named R.G. Letourneau, who I'd never heard of before, probably should have, because apparently he invented 70% of the earth-moving and engineering equipment that the Allied forces used in World War II. I mean, think about that for a second. We invaded Europe and we invaded the Pacific with untold resources and, and, and people. And this guy invented 70% of the machinery needed to do that. I mean, that's incredible. Um, and, and in 1938, so this is even before World War II, his business was worth $1.4 billion in 1938. I don't know what that would be now, but it's probably more than $1.4 billion, right? So, not good at math. But here's what R.G. Letourneau said about his money. It's not a question of how much of my money I should give to God, but how much of God's money I keep for myself. Right after he got to that $1.4 billion mark in, in, in net worth of his, of his business, he made a point to begin to live on 10% and to give 90% to God. And so he has funded uh, missions, education, churches, Christian organizations, you name it. The generosity from that guy. But, but don't miss, it's because God gave him the ability to raise capital and, and create wealth and invent. I think uh, even today, if you've if you ever heard of Caterpillar, the, the heavy machinery, I think he is responsible for starting that. Fact check me, I could be wrong. But that's a, that's a very different way of viewing work and education than what we are raised with, is it not? Now, I'm, again, I'm not saying that we need to live on 90, or 10% and give 90% to God. We don't, that's not a requirement. That's what R.G. Letourneau felt like he needed to do. Um, but the Bible does give us freedom. I mean, Paul says that each person must determine in his own heart what is, what is right, how to be a cheerful giver. Um, and you could even make the argument, some do, that in the New Testament there's no command that we have to give 10% to God. I, I would say that it's, it's still something that 
as a Christian, we ought to look to as a, a practice that will help cultivate generosity in our hearts. But the point is, where's your heart? The point is, do you have a heart that says, God is the owner of all things, and he has the right to specify how I, how I use what he gives me? So we have had some friends, still good friends, who uh, before we left our, our, our church in Tennessee to come here, they handed us an envelope one day, and we opened it, and inside was a card, and 500 bucks, $500 bills. So I'm like, all right, really good friends. But uh, in the card, they wrote a note to us. It was really, really kind. And it said, we desire that um, each one in your family, each person in your family gets one of these $100 bills to use to buy something in your new house. And so we're like, cool, yes, awesome. Now, of course, we wanted to honor that. Of course, we wanted to, to specifically use that money for something for our new house because that would be honoring to them. And that's, that's kind of the way we should look at how God gives us what we have, is that he has the right to specify how we use what he gives us because he is the creator and owner of all things. So, so how does he want us to use those possessions, our wealth? Yes, provide for our families, absolutely. Yes, enjoy what he gives us. I mean, if you, if you enjoy a hobby like fishing or hunting or sports or whatever, enjoy that. If you enjoy traveling, enjoy traveling. Take a good vacation with your family. Bless your family. But you will enjoy those gifts most when you see them as gifts from God and when you are cultivating generosity in your heart. That's how a heart is captivated by God, is, is when at the same time we are, we are growing in generosity towards Him. And so just practically looking at that, you think back to the practice of giving first fruits in the Old Testament, right? So they would harvest their crops, um, and God tells them, give me your best first. Give me your best 10%, or, or give me your best 10% of whatever business you have. Uh, and that's where we get the practice of tithing. And so the, the Israelites would give not as, as, as a sacrifice, but not as like a sacrifice of, oh God, please give me your favor. Because literally they already had his favor, right? And so it's a sacrifice of thanksgiving, of here, God, thank you so much for giving us good gifts and for loving us and being gracious to us. And that was the, the concept of tithing. There's also in the Old Testament the concept of gleaning, and so if you, if you look at Leviticus 23, um, it says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So if you had a field and you're going to go harvest it, uh, you wouldn't harvest all of your crops. You'd leave some on the edges so that the poor could come behind you and, and be able to gather from, from there and have enough to eat. See that? particularly in the story of, of Ruth, who gleans in Boaz's field, ends up marrying Boaz and becomes King David's great-grandmother. God uses generosity in huge ways. And these practices of tithing and being generous to the poor, that is how God cultivates generosity in our hearts. And that is how he deepens our dependence on him. When our, when our grips are loosened on our, on our things, and our heart holds fast to God. 
So maybe this is a step of faith for you. Maybe to give seems challenging. Maybe it's even a sacrifice. Um, But I, I want us to take heart in the promise that Paul gives us in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 10 and 11. Look what he says. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Now, when he says that we'll be enriched in every way, I want us to be clear It's not about material wealth. That word for enriched there is not make you rich in terms of material possessions. It's actually a word that means to make you spiritually rich. And so to be enriched in every way here means if you give, you you aren't necessarily going to like start getting mysterious $10,000 checks in the mail. Like God does that sometimes. You know, you hear people talking about how I had a a car repair bill that was 500 bucks and somebody gave me 500 bucks because I'm faithful in my giving. That Absolutely, that happens. And God does that, and God can do anything. But that's not the main point here. The main point here is that God will enrich your heart to cultivate generosity and enrich your soul so that you will grow spiritually rich. It's not necessarily about the growth of your bank account, although God definitely, I mean, I've seen it in my life, God does way more with my 90% than I can do with my 100%. I've seen that. But giving, that's, that's not a guarantee to grow in riches, but giving is a guarantee. We give with a cheerful heart to grow in thanksgiving towards God, to grow in our hearts. Now, I know Frank preached on this earlier this year about five times, and so I don't want you to think that we're just bombarding you with, with this giving stuff, but it is, it is kind of where, you know, when you preach through the Bible, this kind of thing just comes up, and I think God is... is using this text to bring that up again. So how are we doing with this as a church? How are we doing with leaving room in our budgets, creating margins in our lives so that we have enough to give to the poor, but also so that we have enough up front to give to God as tithes and offerings? How are we doing with giving to the church, with giving to missions, with actively seeking to help the poor? And again, I know this is a challenge. I know it's difficult. I know that you might be thinking, I've got I've got to take care of my family. I want to bless my family. I've got bills to pay. I have student loan debts. I have medical debts. This doesn't even make sense how I would like, lower the amount I have in my budget by giving to God first. So, it may be, and maybe this is your first time coming to church and you're like, I had no idea this is what they talked about. <laughs> or maybe you're coming back to church for the first time in a long time and you're like, Great. One time I come back, preacher's talking about taking my money. Well, I promise we are not trying to get a church jet or anything like that. But (laughs) what I do know is that we bring this up not not because we want to get rich off of Jesus. That's certainly not it. We bring this up because we know in in God's word that he uses generosity to change our hearts. And And our hearts is what he's after. Our hearts, the, the transformation of our hearts so that it becomes more like Jesus' heart, that is what God is after. And this is one of the ways that he does that. So just practically, I wanted to, to point you to something real quick, if, uh, if you'll bear with me. If you can put that giving resources slide up. Um, we have a, on our website, 
there's a giving resources page you can go visit. And it's, it's fabulous. You can, you can listen to a couple sermons on giving um, that, that may be far better than what I'm doing right now. Um, you, you can read, you know, there's book recommendations. There's even stuff for your kids to teach, teach them about giving. Um, there's a couple of sample budgets that include tithing in them. There's even a tithing calculator. You ever need a tip calculator? We've got a tithing calculator. So I would, I would highly encourage you to take advantage of that page um, because I think that as a church, if we're, if we're looking for ways to help us learn how to do this or even to just to get started for the first time, that is how God works or one of the ways that God works to, to increase our generosity. And you never know what God will do when we are generous towards his church, towards his kingdom, towards the great global cause of spreading the gospel around the globe. So God owns all things. God delights in giving us things. God loves when we give back with thankful hearts. And it's clear that this is how we actively and positively keep the Eighth Commandment. But what if, on the flip side, you think about he, he gives generously, generously to us, commands us to give back. But what about when we just kind of want to keep everything to ourselves? We're not stealing, okay, but we're not giving. We're, we're just in this place where we're sort of just neutral on generosity. Well, I think it's clear that to keep everything to ourselves goes against the heart of the Eighth Commandment. If your heart is, is solidified in this, in this place where we're kind of just thinking, what's mine is mine and I'm going to keep it, I think that actually goes against what the Eighth Commandment is teaching. Uh, look at Ephesians 4.28 again real quick. We talked earlier about how this is the, sort of the Bible's rehab plan for the thief, to get him from thief to, to giver. Um, and if you look at that, you look at the, the Old Testament and some of the case studies on, on theft, if you look at the teachings of Jesus on generosity, the Bible's message is very clear that we are, as Christians, to be generous people, that it is really not okay for us to not be generous. Uh, think about Malachi 3.8. You know, Israel went through so many periods of time where they were far from God, and this was one of them, because they were holding back their tithes from God. And this is what he says. He says, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And he says, in your tithes and contributions. You see, if God is saying, I give you all that you have, and that first 10% of what I give you is meant to be given back to me, then for us to hold on to that 10% is actually to steal. Because we're holding on to something that does not belong to us. It is marked for God. It is meant for God. It's kind of like if, you, if your, your son or your daughter has a birthday party to go to. And so you go out to Target and you buy a present. And you give it to the, your son or daughter to take to the party to give to their friend, but then your son or daughter just hangs on to it. So I'm going to keep that for me. Sort of the same concept. We're, we're keeping a gift that's not meant to be kept by us. But look at what God says 
that he will do if we are generous. Look at Malachi 3.10, just two verses later. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Will he not open the windows of heaven for us? And again, I don't want you to start thinking about God raining down Ferraris on us. Okay, It's not, not what he's talking about. He's talking about making sure that we have our needs met. That we are taken care of so we don't have to worry about that. So that we are freed up to be generous to others. And that's what Matthew 6 says. He'll provide for our needs. He cares so much more about us than about the birds and the flowers. They have what they need. How much more then will God give us what we need as a good father? How much more will he involve us in building his church, in building his kingdom, in spreading his gospel, in caring for the poor? Will he not enrich our hearts and our souls if we trust him to be generous? Do we not have faith that God, the owner of all things, can and will provide. If you think about it, that's where stealing comes from. When we, when we stop having faith that God can and will provide, we begin to think it's up to me. I've got to take for myself what I need. I have got to keep everything I have because where else am I going to get it? We've forgotten who owns all things. There is great danger in remaining neutral and not giving. We end up thinking that we are the Lord of our own stuff, but we unknowingly make our stuff our Lord. The things we own end up owning us. I've been there. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you are there. Maybe I'm there right now and I don't even know it. What do we do? We need to remove the crown from our wealth, give the crown to Jesus. We need, to, we need to experience Jesus the way Zacchaeus did. I mentioned Zacchaeus before. The thief, the tax collector who defrauded, don't know how many people. We need to experience what he did when he went up into that tree, the sycamore tree, to see Jesus. The text says that Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come down. I've got to stay at your house tonight. Zacchaeus comes down, and it says he received Jesus joyfully. And then look at what it says in Luke 19.8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. The half of my goods. And if I've defrauded anyone or anything, yes, he has, I restore it fourfold. Okay, so Zacchaeus basically just gave away everything to follow Jesus. Why? Because there has been a transfer. Zacchaeus' heart has been transferred into the possession of Jesus Christ. His heart has changed. Jesus has changed everything for him. So now his whole being, who he is and what he owns, it is now at the disposal of his new Lord. It is at the service of his new Lord. It's no longer about him his wealth is no longer about providing for himself or getting more for himself. It's now his wealth is about Jesus. Whatever he has, it is at his new Lord's disposal. And so what we see is that joyful generosity, this being receiving joy, Jesus joyfully and, and giving back out of what we have, 
is, an, it is one of the unmistakable evidences of Christ at work in our hearts. Why? Because that's how Jesus works. That's how he accomplished our salvation. Look at 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's the gospel. That's how Jesus accomplishes our salvation. That's how he operates. And so when we encounter Jesus and his grace, it rubs off on us. It begins to be how we operate. It begins to be how our heart functions, a heart that becomes more and more about generosity. Kent Hughes says, Every time I give, I declare that money does not control me. Perpetual generosity is a perpetual de-deification of wealth. I love that because it's saying every time I, I, I make something not about me and I, I'm giving it away, I'm saying, I've got a different Lord. It's not my stuff, it's Jesus. Jesus is, is well known, you know, for being crucified between two thieves. But you ever stop and think that when he was on the cross, he actually, in a sense, became a thief in our place, was crucified in our place as the thief that, that really we are, but instead we get his right standing with God. And we, we get to grow in joyful generosity. When you encounter Jesus, that, that enrichment of heart, that joyful generosity that he brings, you will not be able to keep it to yourself. He may slowly grow you in that, and, and I found that that's sort of how he's worked in me. Um, but he will lead you in giving back, in worship, and in thanksgiving, and in delighting in being generous towards others. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you are a God of grace, a God who delights in giving good gifts to your children, a God who does not leave us in our poverty, but who even has sent your Son Jesus to uh, take on our poverty and to give us the richness of salvation, the richness of, of knowing you. And I pray, Father, that as you work in our hearts, as you as you grow us, as you transform us, that you would grow us in generosity, that you would grow us in joy and contentment, because these are the marks, the evidence that you are at work in us. We love you and we thank you and we praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.